This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, Canadians' trust in government has surged 20 points since January of this year. The Canadian government has moved into the top spot as the most trusted institution in Canada, with 70% of Canadians saying they trust our government. What the heck is going on with Elon Musk? He was complaining on Twitter earlier, and then he uh, went into this rant, uh, expletive-filled rant, I should say, on the company's uh, quarterly conference call. And a website created locally can let you know how long your wait will be to get into that grocery store. So a few weeks ago, her mom came home and was really stressed out with how long the lines were. And Pan, who's a software engineer, had the idea to build a website that showed store wait times. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. The mass class divide is the largest we've ever seen. Um, And it's in countries we've never seen it in before. So happy Canada and Germany. Saudi Arabia has a 21-point gap between the elites and the mass population. So these are all signals that the system isn't working for most people. That's Richard Edelman. He is the CEO of Edelman Communications, and that was him talking back in January. Now, the company publishes an annual barometer of how much people trust their public figures and their institutions. And as you heard back in January, there were some interesting numbers there. Well, they decided to do a spring update based on everything that is happening, because we all know the world in January is not the world in May of 2020, is it? So they looked at Canada, they looked all over the world, they talked to people about trust, how they're feeling about corporations and everything. We want to know, what is it? How are Canadians feeling about that? So the general manager of Edelman in Vancouver joins us now to talk more about this. It's Rhea Dubois-Phillips. Rhea, thank you so much for being here. Hi, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. So what? how do you do this? Like, What kind of a survey is this and how do you go about getting it done? So we reach out to uh, global markets. And we do an online survey with respondents uh, around the world. For this Pulse survey in Canada alone, we had over 1,200 respondents participate. All right, that's pretty good then. So were there big differences that you noticed between the January survey and this one? Oh, massive difference to me. So in January, um, the government was at the lowest trust rating of all four of our institutions. So we survey government, business, media, and NGOs. And when we did this Pulse survey, the results just came out last week. Uh, the Canadian government has moved into the top spot as the most trusted institution in Canada, with 70% of Canadians saying they trust our government. That's, so it's a huge jump. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. So they went yeah. from poor ratings to being the number one thing that Canadians are trusting right now. That's right. It actually is a 20-point jump, which we rarely see in this kind of survey. Um, and we're second only to the UK. So clearly our government is doing something right. And so what suffered as a result? So if that was now number one, what isn't number one anymore? Well, actually, we're seeing um, an increase in trust across the board. So there was a shift moving up uh, across all four institutions. And I think what's really interesting is to look at what they did well and how they moved into this top position. So I think that uh, the Canadian government has been very good at building alliances 
and embracing collaboration across the parties and institutions. I think you'll see Trudeau regularly deferring to the medical health officers and acknowledging that our policies have to be rooted in science and data. So this is resonating with Canadians. 80% of Canadians think that the Canadian government has done a good job handling this crisis so far. Interesting. What about corporations? So I think we'll see that corporations will emerge um, with more emphasis in this second phase of the crisis as we start to think about the back-to-work scenario. So uh, sometimes we can think of it as a bike race. If we think of uh, the government as leading the first phase of that bike race, Mm -hmm. I think we'll see CEOs kind of moving up into that pole position and trying to take the lead now and figure out how we can all safely return to some semblance of work. Right. So whereas government had the lead when the crisis was on, now as we move forward, Canadians expect the CEOs of companies to step forward? That's right, they do, yes. And in fact, they don't want them to wait for government to do that. So they want the health authorities to lead that return to work and establish safe policies for us all to get back into the office. And we have a long way to go on that. Only 12% of Canadians feel ready or safe to return to the workplace. That's a really low number. That's a really low number, Cindy. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on that front, for sure. Right. I understand as well, only 28% of the people you surveyed thought that CEOs in Canada were doing an outstanding job with their response to this. That's right. And I think what we need to see is taking a, a page out of Trudeau's leadership manual. So I think the fact that he has led daily press conferences and been very visible to Canadians throughout this crisis has provided a great deal of assurance to Canadians. And we need to see CEOs take that visibility and be um, be communicating with their employees on a regular basis. Right. So I, think all, in, I was going to say, it, so, it also <laughs> sounds like that Canadians are, they, they want to trust, right? Like they've got come to a place where they trust these institutions. It could also be seen like as an opportunity for these businesses then? It's a massive opportunity. I I completely agree. I think that they can show to their employees that they are putting their employees' safety first. That's number one. And ahead of profits, we need to know that businesses are creating safe environments for their employees and for their customers as well. So safety protocols like elevators or workspaces, hygiene on the work front or in stores and restaurants, as long as people are communicating that those have all been addressed and that we're following the regulations set out by the health authorities, it's going to provide people with a great deal of assurance. And they, and they really feel that so far in this crisis, the Canadian leadership has stepped up and done a very good job. It's going to be so interesting where you had to see the results of, say, your survey like a year from now as well to find out <laughs> if these institutions were able to hold on to this trust. Well, I mean, I think that whatever goes up typically goes down. We see that we've been uh, we've been assessing trust every year for 20 years consecutively, and it is a cycle for sure. We may have a bit of a trust bubble right now with the Canadian government. Uh, I do believe that businesses have a huge opportunity to emerge at the forefront now and communicate clearly to their audiences. That's going to be the next thing then, I guess. Rhea, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Simi. That is Rhea Dubois-Phillips, General Manager of Edelman Vancouver. They do this regular um, update on trust. They survey all over the world. There was 1,200 people in Canada that they talked to, essentially about how much people trust their public figures, their institutions, whether it's government, NGOs, business, media, what have you. 
They did a spring update because in January they did the numbers uh, and the spring numbers are completely different, of course, after everything that we have been through, right? Canadian trust in government surged 20 points since January, putting government now in the top spot of the institutions that are most trusted by Canadians right now. 81% of the Canadians they surveyed believe that pandemic-related restrictions on our freedom of movement, that those restrictions are reasonable and appropriate to help contain the pandemic. And this one's also really interesting. 54% said they are willing to give up more personal information to help track and contain the virus. But as Rhea also points out, this is an opportunity now for businesses because right now only 28% of the people who they talk to think that CEOs are doing an outstanding job with their response. So that'll be the next phase of things that we look at. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. What is going on with Elon Musk? He is in a very public battle with officials in the state of California. He reopened the production plant for Tesla in Alameda County, even though the state had ordered him not to. Not only that, he says he's willing to get arrested if need be. And there's all sorts of other stuff going on too. So let's sift through all this latest Elon Musk uh, developments with the help of Jeff Gilbert, who's the automotive reporter and CBS correspondent. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. What is going on with Elon Musk? I think that's a question we might have asked a few times before. Yeah, yeah, we have actually. But this one is interesting (laughs) because he's actually saying, I'm going to do this. I don't care what you're saying. Come and arrest me if you have to. Yeah, and this has escalated over the last week or so. He was complaining on Twitter earlier, and then he uh, went into this rant, uh, expletive-filled rant, I should say, on the company's uh, quarterly conference call. And then over the weekend, he threatened to move his operations out of California, and then he just decided, well, hey, I'm going to restart my plant. Who's going to stop me? And so it also, wasn't it, was it last week or the week before where he was saying, oh, I think the Tesla stock price is too high, and so it went yeah, down. That, that, it's crazy. Yeah, that was kind of unrelated to this, and he's also uh, said he's going to sell most of his worldly possessions, too, but those are kind of like, like tangential compared to this main issue, which is uh, defiance of local authorities. So I'm assuming he's not on any kind of paternity leave then, even though uh, he just recently had a new baby. Uh, no, I don't think so. And uh, I can't pronounce the name of the new baby, so let's not even go into that yeah, Exactly. One. Who can? Uh, okay, so then, Jeff, what are the repercussions for this? This is very serious. Like, for the employees at that plant, has he even talked about, like, did they take social distancing measures? Has he protected them for their health and safety? You know, it's interesting to compare this to the Detroit three car makers and the major imports. They have all taken pains. They've issued uh, playbooks for reopening, social distancing, masks, other personal protective equipment, sanitation, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. He has vaguely said uh, that we've changed the plan to protect our employees, but hasn't said much publicly. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, I don't know much about California law, so I have no idea what recourse the inspectors in Alameda County, California, will have. I don't think they're going to send police into the plant to arrest him, but hey, you never know. Financially, then, how important, though, is it for him to get the plant started again? Oh, it is probably more important to him financially than any other car maker because he has, you know, smaller profit margins. He does not have the big hordes of cash on hand that other car makers have. So, this is hurting Tesla more than any other car maker because not only is that Tesla's only plan in the United States, 
a lot of things that are built at Tesla's important new plant in Shanghai are sent there from the plant in Fremont. So all of Tesla's production in the world is dependent on that plant operator. So how realistic is it then for him to say, that's it, we're going to leave California? Uh, totally unrealistic in the short term because you can't exactly you know, take a big auto assembly plant, put it on the back of a truck and haul it uh, across the border to Nevada. So short term, not, not realistic at all. But it could be sending a signal on where he's going to make his long-term investments. I was talking to an analyst yesterday who said he may be sending signals to California that, hey, I'm not married to this state. As I build other plants in the future, as I may decide to build a new headquarters somewhere for both Tesla and SpaceX, it's probably not going to be in California because Nissan and Toyota have both left California uh, ahead of Musk. And, you know, that particular plant itself is the only auto plant in California where California used to have several because California is somewhere where it's very expensive to operate. So short term, not realistic. Long term, he may be making future investments elsewhere. Interesting. How do the markets respond when this happens? Uh, I don't know. I wasn't looking at Tesla stock yesterday, but Tesla being Tesla probably went up. (laughs) So true. So true. Jeff, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. That is Jeff Gilbert, automotive reporter and CBS correspondent, talking about the latest involved with Elon Musk. He loves to say stuff on Twitter, but if you're in you know the business of holding stock, you wonder, is this good for Tesla? Well, Jeff's absolutely right. Usually it is, no matter what kind of craziness he says. The latest is a very public spat with health officials in Alameda County in the state of California, where they said, look, you can't open. This plant is huge. As Jeff said, only Tesla plant in the United States where they are producing these Teslas. And uh, they were told, no, you can't reopen. And he said yesterday, that's it. We're going to reopen anyway. And if you're going to arrest somebody, he said, make it me. I will make myself available. He said, I will be on the line with the workers. And if you're going to arrest somebody, leave the workers alone. He said, uh, make sure it's me. So that sets up today. Are, do you think health officials will actually show up and arrest Elon Musk? He's kind of daring them to, right? So we'll see what happens with that. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we are seeing a lot of businesses kind of start to open their doors or get ready to do that. But a lot of business owners are also a bit hesitant, I think, to reopen and get staff back to work. They're not quite sure if customers will all be back. So we wanted to talk about what small business owners kind of need to take into consideration. So joining us now for more on this is Scott Allman, Assistant Vice President of the Business Group at Blue Shore Financial. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Simi. So what are some of the things that businesses are grappling with right now and deciding to reopen? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of unanswered questions right now. So, you know, some of the questions that uh, businesses are, are considering are, you know, how quickly can I get my customers back? Will my employees return? How do I manage my expenses? Can I get rent relief? Will there be a second wave causing further closures? So, you know, on certain times like this, really call for uh, quick decision making while dealing with a lot of unknowns. So how do they do that? Where do they start? Well, a great place to start is, is talking to, to their, their advisor. So there's, you know, with all the questions that, that, are, that are out there, uh, I strongly recommend sitting down with someone who can, can provide some real honest feedback and some input and help them navigate through things like the government programs that are out there. There's many of those. Uh, you know, really financial planning is, is the key right now to, to get, get businesses reopened and, and on track. 
Right, because this isn't something that is just happening right now, is it, Scott? This is something that businesses are going to have to, uh, it will impact their budget perhaps for the next couple of years. Oh, easily. You know, and the reality is, is, is some businesses will be able to reopen fairly quickly and, and others won't. You know, so for some uh, some industries and some businesses, it, it will take years to recover. So this is, there's short-term planning involved, but there's also longer-term planning involved here. You know, once the government program uh, relief uh, is, is, is no longer, businesses are really going to need to consider what, uh, what, what their plans are for, for the future. Right. So should they be using this time when they do have that wage subsidy program to plan for that future? Because right now they may be keeping more people on that they are able to. Absolutely. So what they're going to need to do is, is really, really look at their, their cash flow uh, scenario uh, beyond the next few months, beyond the next year, uh, over the next few years. And so I'd strongly recommend, you know, putting together several, several cash flow scenarios. You know, what's, what's their cash flow going to look like at 50% of their pre-COVID revenues or 75%? And they really need to, to not only plan in the next three to six months, but, but, but beyond 12 months. Is this, do you think it must be a very painful time for a lot of business owners as well? Because you're kind of, you're looking right at that. Is it, can I make it? Yeah, absolutely. We, we're hearing, hearing stories uh, on, on a daily basis about the struggles that business owners are, are facing and some of the biggest decisions that they'll, they'll face in their lives, which, which can include potentially closing down permanently. And, you know, some, some are looking at reopening and, and some will reopen fairly quickly. But, but the reality is, is some business owners are coming to us and, and, and wondering if, uh, if, if, they, uh, if they'll be able to reopen at all. So are there some expenses, do you think, that can be put off, perhaps, while they worry about the short term? Well, there's, there's a few things, a few things in the works right now. Um, you know, one, one thing we hear about a lot is about the rent relief. And, you know, rent, for, especially for a lot of these storefronts and, and, and retail-based businesses, that, that's one of their biggest expenses. So there are some government programs that are coming, uh, becoming available. And we also suggest making sure that, that uh, these small business owners work with their landlords, work with their suppliers, and look at ways that they can, they can manage their, their cash, cash flows as, as, as effectively as, as possible. Right. And so do you think, are there lessons to be learned as well from small businesses, from, say, bigger businesses on this? Uh, absolutely. And, and I think the reality is that whether you're a, you're a big business or a small business, you really need to plan and you need to have a financial plan. So even though someone's business operation may, may not be as big or as complex as, you know, the Amazons of the world, you know, all businesses need a strategy and it really needs to be adaptive in, in changing environments such as, such as the one we're, we're in today. And the reality is, is, is cash flow management is important to all businesses, regardless of, of size. And many of these businesses will need to look at ways of generating new revenue streams, uh, may need to move online, and they really need to, to look at whether or not they can reduce their operations to, to be more efficient over the next 6 to 12 months. So irrespective of size, that's, that's something that, that uh, even small business owners need to look at as well. All right, Scott, thank you for your time. Thank you, Simi. That's Scott Allman, the Assistant Vice President of the Business Group at Blue Shore Financial, getting quite a few calls from businesses as they try to put together a new kind of plan.
uh, for an area that we've never really been in before. You know, it's just enough right now to keep the doors open of your business. But if you look ahead three months, six months, what does that look like? Can you continue to keep employees on the payroll after the wage subsidy program offered by the federal government ends? Uh, those are all some tough questions that businesses are dealing with. And if you have a story that you'd like to tell on that, would love to hear from you, especially business owners out there. How are you doing right now in terms of keeping the business open? Are there painful decisions that have to be made? Uh, let me know, simi at cknw.com, and we can share your story with everyone else. This is Mornings with Simi. We still don't know the totality of the damage the coronavirus pandemic will bring to urban life in B.C. One Vancouver City councillor, though, is pitching an idea to lessen it and possibly create a new kind of street culture in the future. Well, that councillor being spoken about in the story there is Lisa Dominato. So what kind of change are we talking about to help boost the culture here in our city? Well, she joins us now to talk more about this motion that is going to be voted on later today. Thanks for being back with us. Thanks. Good morning, Simi. So what is this motion all about? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, So I'm bringing forward a motion that comes forward to council this week, and it's directing our staff to expedite our efforts to implement measures around the city uh, basically to create more space for, for people to move. We've talked about this before. We've got mm-hmm. existing bikeways in the city, uh, places adjacent to parks, where it's a natural place where um, we could enable more people to move. Uh, we've already got designation for cyclists, but what about pedestrians, people wanting to run, jog, go with their strollers, and so on. And I, I heard you talking nurse earlier, talking about the observations at the beaches and how busy it was. Um, people, the good weather is here, well, maybe not today, but, and people are really flocking to get outside. It's been a long number of months, um, but we still need to, re- you know, per- follow those recommendations around distancing. And so this is one of those measures that we can look at. And I've been pushing for and been talking about, uh, you will have seen some efforts around some of our uh, retail areas, mm-hmm. around queuing outside some of our grocery yeah. stores. That's an example of reallocation of street use. Right, I have seen that, right, where they're kind of into the street now where the parking used to be, but that's just to make the lining up easier and safer. But I have to ask, though, so, once again, like this has taken quite a while because we talked to you about this before, and it seems like now things are reopening again and the roads are getting busier, and now we're still talking about you know closing some of them off. Is this the right time for this? Yeah, you know what, I actually think it's um, it has taken longer than I would have liked, but at the same time, I actually think it's absolutely the right time to be doing it um, and the reason why is this is as we're talking about reopening the economy and we've got the good weather here, people are moving outside, as we know. Um, so not just for physical exercise, for fresh air, but um, Premier Horgan was talking about, you know, retailers resuming restaurants, eateries. Well, in addition to queuing, we had a meeting with the downtown Vancouver BIA last week, and they're talking about their retail businesses as customers come back. They may be only letting in a handful of people at a time. So in addition to queuing, what opportunities are there for uh, retailers to be doing vending outside on our sidewalks, potentially in our using a parking space? But also, um, my colleague, Councillor Kirby Young, has also brought a motion that's coming this week around patios and supporting our restaurants and pubs and eateries so that they can have additional space. And so that's another street reallocation use that we can be looking at. And I think it's critically important as we try to reopen the economy uh, now, and, and I, mean, I think we have many months ahead of us, it seems. Right. It, it sounds like what you're saying is the sidewalks are going to be very busy. I, I think they are, and I think we're starting to see that already. As people start to also return to employment, uh, we're starting to have, I'm hearing different conversations with uh, 
companies, businesses talking about having their employees come back into the downtown, to the core. So we're going to see more people moving about, but we still need to do that safely and maintain that distance. And so for me, um, there's a number of reasons why we need to be pushing this and, and really making safe. The other subject that's come up, and I heard you were talking about retailers earlier, is mm-hmm. is there going to be a completely different approach to um, being consumers in the new economy? So we've had uh, downtown businesses say, we want to have curbside pickup for customers. And what is that going to look like? Are you going to give make space for that so people can come stop for 30 minutes, pick up? Um, but there's a number of different reasons that I think this is really a good policy. And I think there's also a longer term conversation about this is, uh, what kind of city do we want? Um, I'm somebody who walks, I run, I ride, I take, have a car, I take to public transit. I really think it's about shared use of our streets. And what does that look like? I think the pandemic might be pushing us in that direction to sort of reimagine that. Right. I know there's and there's a lot of issues, I think, that will be looked at once this is all said and done, things that people don't want to give up. And that's the thing, Mm -hmm. I guess, about some of this sidewalk reallocation, if it works really well, the patios in particular, can you ever really go back to the way it was before? Well, and I, I think that's a really good question. Um, and, uh, you know, patios, it's a, it's a very popular one. And we yeah. have a climate where we can have patios year round potentially. Um, but I don't, I, I think it's about balance it's being measured. And um, I think uh, the other example we've seen is Stanley Park. Well, it's been, it's been closed to vehicles. I've heard people saying they've really enjoyed it. They recognize that in terms of accessibility, inclusion, we need to allow people to access the park. But what if we could just reallocate a bit more of the road space for cyclists so we get them off the seawall? So, again, it's about being pragmatic. But, yeah, I think that the world, uh, we've talked about a new normal. Uh, my colleague talked about a better normal. There's just We're in a completely uncharted territory, and so I think this is going to change the landscape of our city. And, and there's, I think, an appetite to create more public space for people to convene, regardless of the pandemic. Um, but uh, making space for all right. users, I think, is important. So your motion then would allow staff to kind of expedite any efforts in terms of opening up those sidewalks? Yes, yes. And adjacent road space in our greenways, uh, as well as uh, adjacent to parks and other areas, as well as in some of our retail districts. Right. OK, so this is all going to be stuff like these are these council meetings are pretty busy these days, aren't they? <laughs> busy and long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the debate. I think it dovetails nicely with the conversation about how do we expand and, and expedite permits for patios so we can really support that sector, which has been incredibly challenged, as we know, through the pandemic and are you know, having to change their business models. And so I am excited about that as well and how it fits with that motion. How do you feel about the criticism that the City of Vancouver councillors have been getting for sticking with this 7% property tax rate hike in this whole pandemic situation? Yeah, you know, to me, I um, I was really strongly on the record in December. We were dealing with our budget at that time, and I actually voted against the 7% increase and actually tried to defer the budget discussion at the time. And ironically, it was two weeks before we knew about the COVID cases. And I was very clear that I actually thought we should be taking a closer look at our budget and looking at where we can reduce some of our spending and that uh, we shouldn't just be going along as we have. And that wasn't supported by council, the majority of council. And so the budget was passed. I didn't support the 7%. I moved a motion again two weeks ago to say, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we're having an Im- immense shortfall. We should be revisiting and looking at that $110 million increase that was added to the 2020 mm-hmm. budget and um, and looking at reducing, uh, either deferring anything in there or canceling items. And that motion was also voted down. Um, uh, and so 
you know, I've been very clear that I think 7% is too high. And um, our budget, unfortunately, was already passed in December. And there doesn't seem to be an appetite to revisit that. And I think that's uh, unfortunate. Uh, everyone's feeling the crunch right now. Many people have lost their homes um, and, or sorry, lost their homes, lost their jobs. And I think it's incredibly challenging uh, for people. I'm, I have a feeling Vancouver Council is going to be hearing more about that. Uh, but thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thanks a lot to me. That's Lisa Dominato, Vancouver City Councillor, talking about her motion that council is going to be talking about today. And this would direct staff to expedite any efforts to identify and implement appropriate reallocations of road space to allow more physical distancing. So essentially chances to open up that sidewalk space and kind of take over some of those parking spaces, whether it's for lineups outside retail stores, whether it's for more patio space, whether it's just for more pedestrian space, whatever the case may be. This is Mornings with Simi. You've been hearing about some of this in the news, but one of the unexpected side effects of what has been going on with this COVID-19 situation is the huge reduction that we have seen in power consumption. And you're probably thinking, well, how's that possible? I'm at home all the time. Everything is on. The computers, I'm, I'm using up so much more. Well, sure, that's at home. But think about all the businesses and the offices and all the other places that are not turning on all the lights all the time and using up all of that energy. So yeah, BC Hydro facing a huge reduction in power consumption. And for them, that's a pretty serious problem. So let's talk about how they plan to address it. Joining us now is Tanya Fish, the BC Hydro Media Relations Manager. Tanya, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. How much power are we talking about? So the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in an unprecedented decline in energy demand in the province. Um, so right now we've seen about a 10% drop um, in energy demand. And to put that into context, um, as a result of the 2008 recession, we saw about a 5% drop. And we anticipate right now that the drop in load could grow by more than 12% by this time next year. So certainly an unprecedented situation we're in right now. Okay, so what does that mean then for BC Hydro? Yeah, so the concern right now is really this drop in demand means less water is being moved out of our reservoirs to make electricity. While at the same time, we're seeing these high inflows as a result of the spring snow melt right now that's also occurring. So this does create a large surplus of power. It does lead to the potential for our reservoirs to near capacity. Um, So if we don't address this now, it could create the need to conduct some large prolonged spilling from our facilities later on, uh, which does create some flooding risks as well as environmental concerns. Okay, so has this ever happened before? You mentioned, you know, 10 years ago or so, but this kind of impact where too much power, you know, potential for spillage, has that happened before? It hasn't. No, it is an unprecedented situation right now. So, again, we are taking some measures right now to to deal with this and to ensure that we don't have to go into this prolonged spilling, which, again, does create these risks potentially for flooding and environmental concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are going to be shutting down some of our operations at some of our small plants. Right now, we've identified three plants that we'll be shutting down operations at. Um, We'll also be conducting some controlled spilling from some of our facilities. And this just helps to balance that the generation that's being, the power that's being generated, along with the uh, province's electricity load. Um, And then we're also, our PowerX, which is BC Hydro's trading subsidiary, will be looking to export some of that surplus power to other jurisdictions. Right, so what does this mean for BC Hydro's bottom line? Yeah, so we do know that our revenues are highly dependent on demand. So when we do see drops in demand like this, um, that can put upward pressure on rates. 
However, right now, it's really hard to say what that's going to mean. There's so much uncertainty around, you know, the measures being lifted, how BC's economy will respond, as well as how other nations will respond to to the pandemic. So, again, it's very hard to say right now. But in terms of our focus, it's really on the ensuring that our our system remains safe and ensures that we can ensure that we can deal with this um, excess surplus of power that we're having right now. Yeah, this must be tough for customers to hear, though, because on the one hand, we get told when there's too much power, that's upward pressure on rates. And now if there's uh, too much power, we're not using enough power. There's also pressure on rates like we can't seem to catch a break. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right now the, the challenge is really the, the businesses have closed. So we have seen that 20% drop in, in in commercial electricity load since since March. Um, and then industry as well. We've seen about a 10% drop in, in industrial load from our large industrial customers. So oil and gas, forestry, those customers as a result of them reducing or shutting down their operations. So again, we are keeping a close eye on the situation and ensuring that uh, we take the steps that we need to keep our system safe. And uh, on the revenues and rates aspect, we'll continue to monitor that and and, and see how this, this uh, situation continues. Yeah, when will you have a better idea, though, of the revenue shortfall aspect? So we're continuing to, to monitor the situation right now. We are looking at different scenarios around our load and, and what can happen as, as these measures are, are lifted. Um, we have introduced, for those customers that are, are having a challenge right now, we have introduced our COVID relief fund. Uh, so this provides our residential customers with a, a credit in the amount of up to three times their monthly bill amount. Um, right now, we've had about had over 110,000 customers apply for this relief fund. And we also have a, a relief fund for our small business customers as well, where they able, they're able to apply to have their electricity costs waived for up to three months. And to date, we've had about 11,000 customers apply for that. So this is for really those the customers that have been hardest hit by the, the pandemic. We know there's many British Columbians out there that are having, having challenges right now. So those are two things that we're offering to help with our customers. That also, I mean, that's a financial hit for BC Hydro. So when will the when will the company have a better idea of the financial situation? Yeah, again, it's hard to, it's hard to say right now. There's so much uncertainty with with how BC's economy is going to respond. So we're continuing to look at look at how the economy responds from measures being lifted um, as businesses start to open again, and what that what that means, and what it means for their operations. Are their operations going to go? back to what they were doing before? Are they going to reduce operations? Um, again, we know that the electricity demand is very is highly dependent on economic activity, both here in BC as well as other nations as well as, as we look to export products to other places and, and seeing what kind of a demand they, they have for, for BC's, uh, BC's good. Right. So it sounds like you're saying everybody's in the same boat right now. Yes, essentially, we have seen, I know other jurisdictions are seeing a, a drop in, in, in demand as, as well. So it's not a unique problem to BC right now. Um, again, we're, we're, I think some jurisdictions are seeing up to a 25% drop in energy demand. So it's really not unique to BC like, as far as this pandemic is a, mm-hmm. is a global challenge. And it's just one of those aspects that, that we're having to deal with right now. All right, Tanya, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Tanya Fish, BC Hydro Media Relations Manager. So, uh, yeah, we know this is a unique and unusual time. And for BC Hydro, it is just like everyone else on that. No shopping malls open, restaurants, workplaces closed, all of that. That has meant a real decrease in power consumption in the province. It's caused a problem uh, because that means they're not letting out as much water to generate electricity. And so now they're concerned about spring runoff, leading them to a situation that they've never really had before. So we'll be definitely talking more about that. This is Mornings with Simi.
Now, one of the other issues that we have grappled with in this pandemic just recently is the fact that as we get uh, closer to another phase of reopening, we've been told that we can kind of increase our social circle or bubble. We can expand that bubble, as they call it. Well, there's a new survey out this morning that shows maybe we don't know fully how to do this yet. To talk more about the results, we're joined by Mario Conseco, the president of Research Co. They've done this. Uh, in, they've done this survey to tell us more about it. Hi, Mario. Good morning, Simi. So what is it that you asked people? Well, we wanted to know how they felt about this family bubble concept. It's something that was introduced in the Maritimes last month. They were talking about the idea of maybe uh, letting some residents go visit families and essentially expand their social uh, circle uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And what is quite curious about the survey is it really shows how human nature can work. There's only 44% of Canadians who believe that this is a good idea, so less than half. But when we are told that we can do this, if our governments authorize it, 82% of us would take advantage of it. So it's pretty complex <laughs> in the sense that we don't think it's going to work, but if they let us do it, That is so human nature right there, Mario. That describes the entire situation for us, right? Exactly. You know, it's it's, uh, quite striking because the numbers are very different in specific regions. Uh, You know, since we've been asking questions about COVID-19, there seems to be a certain steadiness to the numbers when it comes to the entire country. And on this one, there was definitely some changes that I didn't expect. 68% of Quebecers say family bubbles are a good idea, but it drops everywhere. 40% in Ontario, 39% in BC, all the way down to 18% in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So once again, Quebec is looking at this very different from, uh, uh, differently from the rest of the country. All right. What about the idea of attending large events? Like I, I watch stuff on TV, you know, of old movies or whatever TV shows. You see people in large events and I just kind of go, oh, geez, yeah. I don't know how I feel about that right now. Well, there's definitely a scenario here where a few residents believe that this is going to happen. I think we've been looking into the calendar uh, since the start of this pandemic, you know, maybe it'll happen by Easter, maybe by Mother's Day, uh, maybe by Victoria Day, maybe by Canada Day. And there's only 18% of Canadians who believe they will be able to attend or host a large social gathering before the end of July. Most people are looking into the fall as the place where this is going to happen. 36% saying it might be somewhere between August and October. But there's also 12% who say, don't bother and look into 2021. It's not going to happen until January. Really? So that sounds like there's a pretty sizable number of pessimistic people out there. Well, it is pretty high. I mean, it's it's one in 10 Canadians who are essentially saying, I don't think this is going to work very uh, uh, quickly. Um, there's a little bit of a change when it comes to regions. Quebec and Ontario, who have been talking a little bit longer than all the other provinces about reopening, you see a little bit of hope there. There's more Ontarians and Quebecers who believe that we might be able to attend or host a social gathering this summer, but the numbers are not as high here in BC. Okay, and what about working in the office? This is an issue I know that workplaces everywhere are kind of grappling with right now. Some people may not want to come back to the office. Well, that is definitely part of the situation. When we've asked people about going back to the office, there's a lot who are saying that they would like to work from home at least a couple of days. There's a sense of desperation from those who are taking care of kids, for instance. They're finding it very hard and they're struggling with the idea of working from home and also taking care of their kids. 
but we don't see a lot of people who believe that we're going to be doing this before the summer. There's only 28% of Canadians who expect to go back to the office and not work from home anymore before the end of July. Uh, once again, a lot of people are thinking that maybe this is going to happen during the fall, but the numbers are all over the place. You know, it's not a situation where you have a specific group that is saying, yes, I am ready to go back to work. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a little more stubbornness from men, uh, but that has been consistent over the past couple of weeks with the questions related to social distancing as well. Yeah, let's have, uh, let me ask you about that then. You have been serving and polling people through this entire process. What kind of changes have you noticed? Well, I think there's a couple of things uh, that have really... Uh, been clear in the data. One of them is that there's an appetite for reopening the economy that is coming mostly from Generation X. If you're age 35 to 54, you're more likely to say, let's do this again. I am taking care of kids at home. I want to go back to work. I am worried about finances. We don't see that same situation with millennials or with uh, uh, baby boomers. The other one that is quite interesting is you start to look at the feelings that uh, Canadians have been have been uh, saying they have over the past few months. And uh, we've gone through, from a situation that was mostly anger to a situation that is more fear about the future. And, you know, we know this is going to take longer. We keep looking at the calendar. We keep asking ourselves when this is going to end. And, and there's no clear dates when we'll be able to go back to our lives the way they were before COVID-19. No, there is not. All right, Mario, thank you. My pleasure, Simi. Mario Conseco talking about the latest survey they've done from research companies showing that uh, a pretty sizable number, so 32% of BC respondents are, aren't sure when they will ever begin attending large events. That's something that would, I know, make a lot of people nervous, especially given the fact that tonight, May 12th, was supposed to be the night of the Rolling Stones concert, of course, here in Vancouver. I know a lot of people probably still have their tickets and wondering if they ever will be able to go to a concert like that again. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the really stressful things early on in this pandemic situation was just that idea of going grocery shopping. Will they even have what I'm looking for? Will they have the toilet paper? Will there be a lineup to get in? It has been pretty stressful. And I think the empty shelf situation has gotten better for the most part, I think, over time. But lining up to get into a store, well, that is still an ongoing issue. It, and you're, and you're kind of, you're just, you're going with it, right? You don't know when you get there what the lineup is going to be like, how much time it's going to take. Which is why I was so excited to hear about a new website that was launched a few weeks ago that helps well, helps take some of the guesswork out of these lineups at grocery stores around Metro Vancouver. So we're joined now by the co-founder of this website, which is called HowBusy.com, but it's HowBSY.com, and May Woods is with us. Hi, May. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you. Listen, how did you come up with the idea for this? Yeah, so it's no secret that COVID-19 has affected everyone and lineups at stores have become our new normal. Um, the idea for the website was actually my co-founder. Her name is Pan Kandiharas. It was her mom's um, idea. So a few weeks ago, her mom came home and was really stressed out with how long the lines were. And Pan, who's a software engineer, had the idea to build a website that showed store wait times. She called me up and I thought it was a great idea. Together, we brainstormed what the website would entail, and then Pan built the website in five days while I worked on a marketing strategy. And the same day the website was completed, we were featured on Global News, and it took off right from there. I'm really happy to say we've had over 100,000 users, and it's only been three weeks, and it's continuing to grow. 
It is amazing because I check it out now all the time. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's so practical. But how does it work? How do you get that information? Firstly, we are a crowdsourced platform, which means we rely on user input. We encourage our users to update their wait time while they're waiting in line and give other people in their community an accurate depiction of what's going on at that particular store. It only takes 10 seconds and anyone can update their wait time. For the stores that aren't updated as frequently, we have an estimated time. And that is the result of an equation incorporating how large the store is, how many people are allowed in the store at one time, and the store's peak hours. The estimated times have the word estimated under them, so our users can clearly decipher the estimated times from the actual updated times by our users. I mean, just the the fact that you'll tell people what the lineup is at Costco, that alone is worth bank, May. Yes. <laughs> Costco, for sure, is our most popular store by far. Are you surprised with how quickly, though, you mentioned this is a crowdsourcing platform, how quickly, though, people have been like, yeah, I'll help you out with that. I'll tell you how long that lineup is. For sure. And I definitely think um, the store wait times were a pain point for a lot of people. And Pan and I are just so happy that people are using it. We built the website to help our community during this time. We are not essential workers, and this was our way of giving back. The response is crazy, I mean, and it looks so great. How did you do it so quickly? Uh, that's all to Pan. She's a really, really, um, really great and talented software engineer who lives in Vancouver. Well, it's amazing then. So what, what's next then? How do you plan to continue to build on this platform? Yeah, well, I'm actually really excited. We just launched a new feature, and it aims to help local businesses and our users. We're calling it the How Busy Community, and it's a forum on our website where users can share relevant information. For example, waiting in line for an hour only to be told that the item you want is out of stock yeah. is no fun. No, it is not. So how's that going to work? Yeah, so... Um, Maybe Costco is out of hand sanitizer, but your local corner store just got a shipment in. In our forum, you could write that so people around you would see that tip. Anyone can post in the community, and it's just another way to help each other. By sharing this relevant information, we hope that not only our users can plan their shopping trips, but also optimize them now. Well, I love it. I'm on it right now. It's so user-friendly. I think it's a genius idea. May, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And if you are a small business interested in promoting on HowBusy.com, please reach out to us. Um, We're offering the service for free and just want to continue to help as many people as we can. Love it. Thanks, May. Thanks so much, Simi. That is May Woods, the co-founder of How Busy. Now, this website is HowBusy.com, but How B-S-Y. So it's HowBusy.com without the U. And you can go on there. You can type in your location. They've got it all broken down into sections for you. Do you want grocery store lineups, banked? liquor stores, recycling departments, or you name it. It's all broken down. For instance, I'm just looking at the grocery store ones, and it'll tell you straight up in the Vancouver area that there's an estimated 25-minute lineup at the Whole Foods on West 8th Avenue. Uh, but uh, some of the other locations, like Save-On, two-minute wait to get in there. Uh, the Bilo has no wait to get in there. So this is fantastic. Now, if you've been frustrated by the lineups at grocery stores, and you definitely need to check this one out again. It's howbusy.com, but busy without the you. More to come. I'm sure we'll be hearing from them for sure.